Good morning. I'm delighted to be here. I'm really glad that it worked out that we could um, uh, sort of bridge these opportunities to be here in North Carolina and just be able to connect with your church and um, even to be able to, to, to preach. Now, I have to say the conversation was a little different than what Pastor shared. I, I think I started with, I'm a psychologist. You do not want me in the pulpit. Um, but uh, And then it sort of unraveled from there. But um, I will have to say that uh, when I was in graduate school to become a psychologist, I did wonder if I should be a pastor. I, I, um, I, I was in the middle of my doctoral studies, and I was really wondering, is God calling me to be a pastor? And in the church I was in, they had a discernment committee that you could talk to about that. And they, they agreed to meet with my wife and I. Of course, my wife's like, Hey, let's let's figure this out because like school's expensive and uh, career change. So anyway, um, so this discernment committee would meet with us uh, once a month and just pray with us and talk with us about the sense of call and just the, all the different things that you would want to pray about and consider. So it's very humbling to have this group of mature Christians pray with my wife and I for 12 months, once a month, meet together, convene, and hold this in their hands in their hearts. And at the end of that year, um, they discerned that I wasn't at that time called to become a pastor. And I think in roughly 25 minutes or so, I think you're going you're gonna to agree with that, that group. <laughs> so um, the main thing I want to talk about is that when we follow after God's will, we will find our family. And I want to go back to the passage in Mark. I'm going to read through different sections and just reflect with you a little bit about what I see. Uh, let me start with the very beginning. Uh, it re this is 20 to 22. Then Jesus entered a house, and again the crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. And when his family had heard about this, they went to take charge of him. For they said he's out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said he's possessed by Beelzebul. By the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. And then as you move to 23 to 27, it says, so Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom's divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand, his end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up then he can plunder the strong man's house. So let me pause there and just give you a picture of what's going on. So Jesus and his disciples had come down from Jerusalem to Capernaum, and that alone might be a little confusing. Capernaum is actually north of Jerusalem, but people always came down from Jerusalem because Jerusalem was elevated. Um, and Jesus and his disciples entered a house, and they would be sitting probably on the ground with the people who were closest to him sitting in closer proximity to him. Um, so they'd be sitting around this house on the floor, probably, and his family would arrive, and that information would be viewed as pretty important to get to Jesus and would kind of make its way through the crowd. And we're going to talk about that exchange in a few minutes, but let's first talk about this passage I just reviewed and this exchange with the teachers of the law, because they had come down from Jerusalem, too. They came to Capernaum. Um, and it's important to remember that earlier in Mark 3, Jesus had just healed a man in the synagogue, a man who had a, a withered hand. And he had been, Jesus, both angry and grieved by what he referred to as the hardness of their hearts around 
um, around this. And he had had a miraculous exchange with this man, right? Stretch out your hand. And he stretched out his hand and was his hand was restored. And their immediate response to this healing was to go out and plot how they could destroy him. So Jesus would withdraw from there. He would continue to heal many others, we learn. He would cast out unclean spirits. And it was at this time that he appointed his 12 apostles. So we pick up with our reading. And the religious leaders landed on uh, an account, an explanation of what's going on here. He's demon-possessed. Um, they refer to him as Beelzebul, which is a Canaanite deity that Jews at that time often referred to in uh, describing Satan. Now, this is a problem. I mean, just basic brand management. Um, religious leaders, you know, could be pretty influential. And if they're saying of a person, Jesus, starting off his, or being in his ministry that he's demon-possessed, we're kind of off to the wrong start there. Um, but it's going to be okay. Jesus' family shows up and they say, nope, nope, he's not, not demon-possessed. He is mentally ill. Okay, so it's not like, um, okay, thanks, thanks family. Uh, thanks for covering that one for me. Um, so um, it reminds me of the famous, uh, the argument, the apologetic that C.S. Lewis made famous on the BBC. He, he described that Jesus, you either see him as a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord, and the leaders there had said he's a liar, right? Satan is the father of lies. He is a liar. His family said, no, no, I'm going to go with lunatic. I'm going to, going to collect him. We'll get him out of your way. Um, of course, Jesus had just established himself as Lord. He'd healed this man with his withered hand. Um, so Jesus challenges the claim that he could be demon-possessed, and he's teaching this. He's unpacking this, actually, when his family arrives. How could Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom's divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. Um, you tie up a strong man to plunder his house. Now, you might ask, what are the goods that are being plundered here? What's he talking about? Would it be the people in bondage to Satan, maybe? Uh, those who would receive salvation's benefits of forgiveness, the Holy Spirit, spiritual gifts, eternal life. The passage could also allude to a passage in Isaiah 49, um, 24 to 25, which is really about the Israelites in exile hoping for release from captivity. Um, but as I say, it can also refer to Jesus' release of the people from their captivity to Satan. But let me read this passage from Isaiah 49. It says, Can plunder be taken from warriors? or captives be rescued from the fierce. But this is what the Lord says, yes, captives will be taken from warriors, plunder retrieved from the fierce. I will contend with those who contend with you and your children I will save. So when did this binding of Satan take place? Well, it takes place with the onset of Jesus's ministry. And in the exchange with the religious teachers, Jesus makes the case that not only is Satan an uninvolved sort of spectator to the liberating activity of Christ, but Satan is actually powerless to do anything about it. Satan's like someone who is bound up while their own house is being plundered. That's who Satan is in relation to Jesus. Jesus concludes by defining his true disciples, right, both negatively and positively. He says negatively, they do not blaspheme against the Spirit. They don't speak against the Spirit. They don't misattribute my work to Satan. And he defines disciples positively by saying they do the will of God. And both words and deeds are believed to have power to shape reality and affect one's standing in the age to come. 
And so this then brings us to what we sometimes call the unpardonable sin in verse 29. So let me just read about that. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They're guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. To blaspheme against the Spirit is specific to this context. To say that Jesus' power is not from God. And these religious leaders are blaspheming against the Spirit by making that claim. But it also generalizes. Many Christians, leaders, and thinkers would say that it generalizes. It's ultimately rejecting the testimony of the Holy Spirit of the truth of the gospel. Let me just pause and say it's not uncommon for Christians to wonder if they've ever blasphemed against the Holy Spirit. I remember when I gave my life to Christ as a teenager, shortly after that, at some point, I heard about the unpardonable sin. And I don't know if it's just in my mind I would ruminate and worry about that. Like, did I? And then, of course, by worrying about it, I would think things, and I would wonder, did I just do it now? Wow. And so I'm probably telling you more about me and why I went into psychology than anything else. Anyway, but I... um, but I, wanted, I guess I wanted you to know if that, were, if that were true for anybody here, I would want you to know that that's not, it's not something that you do or don't do or think or don't think. It's not that. It is the, it's the rejection of the gospel and the very fact that, that you or that I was worried about that is a sign that you are a follower of Christ who's not rejected the gospel. Um, it, it would be sort of, because it's, the, the gospel is a pathway, is a pathway to the kingdom of God. It's living that out and accepting Christ as your savior. Uh, I, it, again, to C.S. Lewis, in The Great Divorce, he describes the gates of hell as locked from the inside, right? It's, it's someone who says, the path I have is a better path than the path that you offer me. And so in that story, um, the folks from Greytown kind of uh, take a bus to the edge of this cliff and they get off and um, they're, they find that the, the, the world around them is just really uncomfortable. The grass is hard and sharp. It's difficult to walk on them. They're just not comfortable there, and they want to go back on the bus. Let's get back to Greytown. That's better. You know, we like that better. We're familiar with it. Um, so uh, what Lewis is saying is that when people aren't open to the work of God in their life this side of eternity, they're not going to dramatically change on the other side of eternity and say that's what I want I want to follow God's will and follow that path on that other side the gates of hell are locked from the inside it's an interesting way that's been kind of a compelling image for a lot of Christians um, so that wanted you to at least know about the unpardonable sin let me go back to our passage and picking up in 31 um, so just some comfort if that's ever been a worry for you that's not something you've done or not done. It would be rejecting the gospel itself and the power of Christ and saying, I've got a better path than the path that God is offering me. So in 31, it picks up, then Jesus's mother and brothers arrive. Standing outside, they sent someone to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. And they looked around at those seated in the circle and said, here are my mothers and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister and my mother. Okay, so the news gets to him that his family is here. They've arrived from Jerusalem. And when Jesus asked rhetorically, who are my mother and my brothers? Um, this is unlikely meant to be a rebuke. He, it is a, I mean, he's teaching and he's interrupted by this news. And I think he just uses this as a teachable moment. Um, 
It would pay a bit of a sting had his mother or brothers heard that. He's using that interruption, though, as more of a teachable moment. Um, looking around, he's saying, here are my mother, here are my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my mother, my brother, my sister. So what he's saying is what comes first are not blood ties, not biological family ties, um, but or not who's raised you, but the family that you're now born into by faith, recognizable by doing God's will. So as important as your family may be to you or may be to me, it is always secondary to your first family. And that's not being said to denigrate families, it's being said to elevate our Christian family. I mentioned that they would be sitting around on the ground with those who were most intimate to Jesus, seated closest to him, those who were more actually thought to be more intimate than that. His family arrive and come to the gathering, and he takes this moment. This is what Calvin says about this. He says, Jesus admits all his disciples and all his believers. He admits them to the same honorable rank as if they were his nearest relatives. Or rather, he places them in the room of his mother and his brothers. He would say, he said brethren here, but brothers. Calvin goes on to say, Jesus is saying he is given, he is given, Jesus is given not to a small number of individuals, but to all of the godly who are united in one body with him by faith. He tells us also there's no, there's no tie of relationship more sacred than the spiritual relationship because we ought not to think of Jesus according to the flesh, but according to the power of his spirit, which he has received from the Father to renew all of us. One commentator, I love this, refers to this as the adoption of the obedient. It's the adoption of the obedient. Do you want to know who's in your family? Look for obedience to God. That is an adopted brother or sister in your family. This is a countercultural move on Jesus's part to honor his disciples more, in a sense, than his blood family members. Um, and in the context of this hearing, um, those who would hear uh, Mark um, would primarily be hearing a message about the demands of discipleship, that one must believe in Jesus and his works and attest to his identity and also do the will of God. So if you want to find your family, follow after Jesus and do the will of the Father. Those who do the will of the Father are your family. Now this has always carried significance for me in this way. My wife and I are adopted parents. We have three adopted children who are not related to each other by blood. And, um, you know, when you're adoptive parents, you do try to create this, you know, a sense of cohesion as family, as all families do. And so that idea that blood ties, while they're important, and they are for the family I was raised in, as my, you know, my parents and my sisters, um, you're, you're, you're an adoptive family saying, we're a family as well. And it's always carried great significance to me because when you meet other families with adopted children, you, you kind of want your children to see that they're not alone in the gift and blessing of adoption. And of course, we all say that, all of us. I say that, I'm adopted. We're all adopted into the kingdom of heaven. It's a wonderful uh, bridge piece that I think has been really significant that God has adopted all of us into his family. We've also had experiences when I was used to teach in Virginia at a large multi-ethnic church. We had very similar experiences of 
um, some of the challenges in setting aside personal preferences for worship and just different ways things would, uh, would happen because it was a multi-ethnic church, everybody laid aside different things that were part of their background in order to have sort of a kingdom identity. And it wasn't that different cultural backgrounds were unimportant, they were important. And they were important for us to learn about in a multi-ethnic community. But they were also secondary to a kingdom identity. And there was this kind of day in and day out, in fact, we used to lead a cell group with a couple from a different racial background than us. We actually vacationed with them and really delighted in their friendship. And um, it's that kind of community that reminds us of a kingdom identity that we're all adopted in the same family. And the third place I've had this, one is our own adopted family, my family. One is the multi-ethnic church. And the third has just been traveling, traveling to places like here in Hickory, traveling overseas internationally when I'm with other Christians. And I realize we're all in the same sort of time frame, so it's not historical, but cross-culturally what it means to share a similar kingdom identity. And you can imagine that then traced back you know, so many years of what it has meant to be a Christian at different times and in different cultures. Um, it's a very humbling thing to think of us as sharing our family life together. So follow after God and you will find your family. So for those of us who are close to our biological or our, the family that we were raised with, um, that can sometimes sound a little off because we're close to our families and we don't necessarily know what to make of that. We don't wanna think of them in terms that seem less than, and I, I don't want to say it that way either. For those of us though who are close to our families where holidays like Thanksgiving and Christmas and Easter are events where we join together and we delight in one another, um, a passage like this can sort of sound a little off like, but you're not really to be set against your family. There are other passages obviously where Jesus values his family. I think of even at the crucifixion, he makes sure that Mary is cared for by John and John will, you know, will, will, will look after her after his death. And, you know, there's a sense that was a very culturally appropriate thing to do, and it, it, it elevates her as family, right? And so also in Psalm 68, 6, it says, God sets the solitary in families. So we don't want to take a rigid stance here that fails to recognize some hyperbole. There's an overstatement here to make a point. But we also recognize that our families that we were raised with are always going to be secondary to our first family, the family of the kingdom of God. Um, but there's others of us for whom family is a difficult topic. Holidays like Christmas and Thanksgiving and Easter are difficult times for a lot of different reasons. And if that's you today, this verse might ring a little bit differently. Like maybe um, I didn't have the experience I was hoping for in my family growing up, but you know what, I'm part of a larger family uh, that can be healthy and can be a place of encouragement and support to me because there are kind of norms in our culture for marriage and family, and when any of us fall outside of those norms, we can find comfort in finding family following after God's will. So for those of us maybe who didn't experience safety in their home growing up, um, this could find, you could find comfort in a passage like this. Maybe you're estranged from your family that you were raised by, and you, and you don't meet cultural norms for that kind of expectation of what holidays would look like. Or maybe if you're single and you're not um, reflecting maybe a couple today in a way that feels different than maybe cultural expectations, um, these verses can be encouraging. Um, 
So let me just summarize what I've been talking about. Jesus is accused of being possessed. He is thought to be crazy. He flips cultural norms for family by identifying family with those who are doing the will of the Father. And that will of the Father is its own speaking series, but we see throughout Scripture that we are to do the will of the Father. Ephesians 6, 6, as servants of Christ, we're doing the will of God from our hearts. Hebrews 10, 36, we persevere, so after you've done the will of God, you receive what he's promised. 1 Peter 4 and 2, um, he does not live out his remaining time on earth for human passions, but for the will of God. And you say, well, what is God's will? So Calvin reminds us that God's will is made clear in John 6, 40. My Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. So how should we respond? How should we respond to this text, particularly this last piece about family? Let me invite you to think about three things differently than maybe you have been. I'm going to invite you to think about yourself differently. I'm going to invite you to think about your family differently. And I'm going to invite you to think about your church differently. And so I'm going to ask you to just pray silently where you are. I'm going to reflect a little bit on each of these three things. First, about yourself differently. Um, so if you were to close your eyes and just pray quietly to God for a few moments, just for a minute, I want you to begin to think about yourself differently, what God's blessed you with, your education, your vocation, your employment, your family, your relationships, and I want you to think about those as things that you're to be a good steward over. What does it mean to steward the things that God's given you? Maybe just quietly you can ask God, what would you, how could I be a good steward of the things that you have given me? My education, my place of employment, the family that I'm a part of, my walk with you. What does it mean to steward those things well? I just want to give those things to you and invite you to speak to me about stewardship. Secondly, I'd like to invite you to think about your family differently. A friend of mine recently wrote about this and offered a few suggestions I'm going to pass along. I want us to think about expanding the boundary of your family. If you are married, you could also invite someone who's single to weekly dinner with your family or include them in holiday celebrations or vacations. You could invite a single person maybe to live in your home. We, my wife and I did this with a friend of ours. Um, there's varying levels of commitment, obviously. You could ask a single person to function as a godparent to one of your children. Being a godparent will mean different things to different people based on the church you're part of and the cultural surroundings around godparenting, but it can be a deeply meaningful point of connection to expand the boundary of your family. We can also encourage single people to create families of their own, to commit to be family to one another, to commit again to the daily rhythms of family life. So just where you are, if you close your eyes and just ask God, what would he have you do to expand the boundaries of how you've understood family? What might he want you to do to expand the boundaries of family?
honestly, I'm going to ask you to think about your church differently. I'm going to ask you to think about whether your church is a family. Is it a collection of people who are seeking to God, do God's will? Is it an emotionally and spiritually safe home for those who both reflect cultural expectations for family and those who don't reflect those same cultural norms? Do people find a home here? Christian women are likely disproportionately affected by any shortcomings that we have in this area. In one study, almost, there's almost 50% more single women than single men in the church. Some have never married. Others are widowed or divorced, maybe re-experiencing singleness but not finding family within their own church home. Um, I'll be talking a little bit tonight about other ways in which people may be benefiting from family and from being connected to others in um, the, the kingdom of God and what that could look like to reach beyond um, some of the um, culturally sanctioned ways in which um, we form our families. So let me ask you just to close your eyes again and just invite God to speak to you about that, about church family, praying for ways in which your church can be a family and what you might even do in the next week toward that end. Follow after God and you will find your family. I'd be remiss to say that if, if anyone's hearing this and they, um, this idea of being adopted into the family is resonating for you, but it's not been your experience, I wouldn't want you to leave today without having an opportunity just to, um, to pray with one of the pastors here in your church or talk with me about that. But what it means to be adopted into God's family is to receive Christ and to know him as your savior. And so that is available to anybody. And that is God's will, is that anybody who knows Christ would know him as their Lord and savior, be adopted into the family of God. Let me pray for you. Father, I just thank you for this church and for the opportunity you've given me just to speak to them today and to talk about this passage. Thank you for your family and just making room for such a diverse and wonderful collection of people who need you. Thank you that we have brothers and sisters in Christ all over the globe and throughout history who are brothers and sisters because they follow after the Father and they do the will of the Father. Would you encourage us today with that word? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.